Amen. Well, thank you so much, music team, for reminding us of the work of Christ this morning with a Christmas flavor to it. So much appreciate this time of year and being able to consider Christ. The theological word is incarnation, his becoming human, taking on human flesh on our behalf. It's such a wonderful time of year for us to celebrate that. So thank you so much for all the work that these guys put in uh, to make these times memorable and to help us uh, really to express our own worship, our own hearts to the Lord. Just what a great time it is. Just a reminder of our Christmas schedule. We will have uh, regularly scheduled programming next week, 1217. Uh, We will have our equipping hour at nine o'clock on the person and work of Christ and then we will have our regular service. Then we're going to take a break. We usually take three weeks off from our equipping hour at nine o'clock. We will continue our regular services here. And then we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke for today and next week. And this... Our sessions, our, our times, our sermons have been so disjointed lately, it seems like, uh, with me in and out, and we've had uh, guests, so I just wanted to jump back into Luke, and it's all about Christ anyways, right? So it all relates in a loose sort of way. So we're going to continue on in the Gospel of Luke. We will have a special uh, time of reflection on the person and work of Christ in a particular way on uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, Christmas Eve is a Sunday this year, and a couple of you have asked. We will have our regular Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock. So regular service at, on Sunday morning, and then 5 o'clock we'll have a time to reflect on the meaning of Christmas and have some songs. Uh, it's usually typically a fairly short uh, service, uh, under an hour, and uh, we'll just have some time to read scripture and remember that Christ has come. So hopefully that's made its way into your family calendars and just becomes a special part, really, of what we're able to do and celebrate at Christmas. We are in the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 43 down through 49. 43 through 49. And I've titled this particular section of the larger sermon, the Sermon on the Plain, Authentic Followers. You know, the word authentic has sort of been hijacked in some places, which is a little bit unfortunate. But it's a great word. The idea of authenticity, if you are authenticating something like an antique, maybe, or an old document, it's something that's textbook definition, it's genuine, actually and exactly what it's claimed to be. It implies something that's trustworthy, as accords with fact. It's real. You know, we live in a world full of fakes, don't we? And this is getting more and more difficult to discern. The world of AI now is creating and making people say things that they never actually said. New images coming out, speeches being given. This is a major concern as we move into a political season as people could have the potential now with AI technology to make ads and make it appear that particular politicians have said things maybe they never actually said. It's really kind of scary. I was thinking about this and thinking about this sermon and Sort of ironically, someone impersonating me this week sent an email to a number of you that was looking for some assistance. I assure you that was not me, and if it sent you a link to buy gift cards, don't do that. Just send your credit card information directly to me, please. No, don't do that either. That was a joke. Don't do that. The world of reality and fakes, and then we have that, impersonating people, And then we live in this world of social media now too, where you go to a social media feed and everybody looks perfect and happy. We'll get barraged with this over the next few weeks. We've already had it with Thanksgiving. Everybody's family pictures and they capture that one nanosecond when everybody's looking and smiling and happy. 
right? But they don't capture the rest of what's going on all around that. It's a highlight reel. And we tend to look at those highlight reels and think, well, everybody's got an awesome life except for me. And I just want to tell you that's not actually true. Many have taken to calling it fake book instead of Facebook, and I understand why. My point today isn't to go off on social media or technology or anything like that. We did a few sessions on that this summer in our equipping hour. If you're interested in that, you can go find those. But I just want to say this, the idea of impersonating and trying to identify yourself as something that you're actually not is not actually a new idea at all. In the Bible, they're called hypocrites, people who say one thing and yet they live in a completely different sort of way. It's the same old issue. We're, ta- we're trying to be something that we're not. With that in mind, we're going to jump into Jesus' sermon This is a sermon that Jesus gave that actually begins back in verse 20 of chapter 6. This is called the Sermon on the Plain. It's sort of the little brother to the Sermon on the Mount, which might be more familiar. So Matthew has a version of this sermon, Matthew 5 through 7. It's much longer, and this is the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Mount versus the Sermon on the Plain. And the only reason we call it the Sermon on the Plain, and that's Just to be clear, we're not talking about airplanes at this point. We're talking about a flat spot that Jesus went and walked down to so that people could see him and he could stand. That's all it is, and that's why it's referred to as a sermon on the plain. So here we are, jumping into this sermon with Jesus, and we've taken a few different sermons to look at this one sermon that the people would have gotten in the hole. And so what I want to do for our first part, at least, is catch us up, because I know we've had a number of people in and out and traveling and so forth, and I just think it's helpful as well to remember that this was one unit of thought, and I think it helps us when you can see the big picture to understand how the pieces all fit together. So let's just look at this. As I've been studying this sermon and just more and more amazed by Jesus' words, I think one of the things that has stood out to me, maybe in a unique way that I haven't thought about in this sort of particular detail before, is just how incredibly practical this sermon is. This is the Son of God, Jesus, God in the flesh. He could have stood up and used a bunch of fancy theological words. He could have lost everybody with some intricate detail of prophecies and talk about covenants and conditional and unconditional elements, the extent of the atonement, as we talked about today, the hypostatic union. He could have just like bombed everyone with this vast, incredible, genius theological knowledge. But he doesn't actually do that. He doesn't actually do that. This sermon is in reality, kind of simple to understand. It's spoken in a way that anybody can get what he's saying. Here's how the sermon ends with amazing simplicity, and we'll go back and talk about this. In essence, he says, you know why you act like a jerk? Because your heart, that's your problem. You think your life is awesome right now? Well, you might think that, but when a storm comes, it's gonna take you out. That's the, that's the conclusion of the sermon. You gotta be, you gotta, and nobody leaves confused as to what Jesus means. So let's step back a moment and look at what's going on in this sermon. We saw that, first of all, we see this idea of opposites day, really starting back in verse 20, where Jesus says, 
the blessed one is the one who's poor, hungry, sad, and outcast. If I asked you to make a list of happy people, blessed people this morning, you've read the text now, but if I'd asked you that before you walked in, that probably wouldn't have made your list. What in the world is Jesus talking about? On top of that, he calls down woes, the opposite of this, those who aren't poor but who are rich, those who aren't hungry but are full, those who laugh, and those who seem to have it all together and have everything going on and everything going for themselves. What is going on? Jesus is beginning to teach about a different type of kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom where blessing is not measured by the things that you have. Blessing is in knowing the Lord and in serving others. It's a completely different type of kingdom. And I think our world is really needing desperately to tap into this. There was a study I was looking at not long ago and it was a study of teenagers. And one of the stats in there had to do with uh, the mental health condition of teenagers. It wasn't necessarily a Christian study, but um, extremely helpful stats in there. And of the teens that noted that they felt persistent sadness and hopelessness, let me just ask you a simple question. Do you think that number has gone up or down in the last, let's say, 20 years? Up. I, I, everybody says that. Why do you think that? Why do we all think that? Why does everybody know that that's the case? We have more than we've ever had. Teens have more. There's more connectedness, technology, availability of basic necessities. It's better than it's ever been, and yet we're doing worse than we've ever done. Ever done. Isn't that interesting? What's going on? I think people are needing to hear the message that true blessing and true happiness, true joy, doesn't come through the things that you have. It comes through knowing the Lord and serving him. It's an opposites kingdom, upside down. On top of that, he gives these commands to do some very strange things, to love people that aren't very lovable. Love your enemies. You're not supposed to do that. Do good to those who are no good, who persecute you. Bless your cursors. Pray for those who abuse you. This is a different type of kingdom. So this was the first part of Jesus' instruction. Then we talked about how this seeing sin, how the blind can't lead the blind. And the common element that we see throughout this is the one that just can't see clearly, can't see straight. Verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. He goes on in verse 39, he also told them a parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will become like his teacher. And then he gives this famous illustration. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, the word we talked about earlier, First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye. You can't see clearly because you are hypocritical. Now, notice he doesn't say, don't try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What he says is take the own log out of your eye first. The picture's so vivid. Just in case you missed my artwork for that week, here you are. And I think Jesus is actually using some sarcasm and humor when he's teaching this. It was obvious. You have a log in your eye. 
It's ridiculous. And yet you're trying to help this guy with a little speck. You can't see clearly. The seeing sin. You're hypocrites. Notice he doesn't say, you have a log in your own eye, so therefore you should just be quiet and go away. He says, get the log out. Don't stay that way. Get it out. And then you can see clearly and you can help out your brother. This is something in church life and community that I just think we need to get used to as believers who live in fellowship and community with each other. When friends who love the Lord are trying to help you, you should listen to them, especially if they're not ones who clearly have a log sticking out of their own eye. They intend your best, and that's how it's supposed to work. Let's go back to verse 40 for a moment here. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. I can't get this verse out of my head. A disciple becomes like his teacher. The basic question I want to ask and drill down on for a little bit here is, who are your teachers? Because you're becoming like them. You will become like them. And I think it's with that Jesus moves now into, how do you know what kind of teachers you should be listening to? Well, you look at the fruit of their lives. And that's where we get into verse 43. Who are these authentic followers of Jesus? Verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks." Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Authentic followers. Two points we'll see as we walk through this. One, actions expose the heart, and two, storms expose the foundation. Actions expose the heart. Jesus is going to attack this from two different angles here. First, he uses the agrarian analogy of a tree and the fruit. This, of course, would have been perfectly normal and natural in agrarian society and world. And in fact, in a lot of different verses, we won't have time to look at many of these this morning, a lot of different verses, being a Christian is is spoken of in terms of fruitfulness, bearing fruit. You see that in famous passages like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and plenty of other places as well. And the answer and the teaching here, again, is amazingly simple. Jesus is saying, if you're this kind of tree, you're going to produce this kind of fruit. So you can reverse that and say, if you get this kind of fruit, that tells you something about the tree. It's amazingly simple to get. This isn't difficult at all. So what if you get bad fruit out of the tree? What if you're getting bad fruit? Well, there's two different options here. One it's an unhealthy tree, 
This is certainly an option. Maybe it's not getting enough nutrition. Maybe your tree's not getting sun. It's sort of covered up by a canopy of other trees. It's in the wrong kind of soil. Maybe you've planted a tree in the wrong kind of environment. I remember when we went out to Sequoia National Park, they sell these little uh, sequoia sapling trees. And there's no telling how many of these they sell. And I have yet to hear of a sequoia grove that's taken root anywhere else other than on the mountains of California. And I understand there's some in China as well. It's, doesn't, the environment is not conducive to grow those things anywhere else. So it's, it's not going to work. So it's, the tree's not going to be healthy and it's not going to work. So it's an unhealthy tree. Verse 43, it's a bad tree. Nor again, does a bad tree bear good fruit. So that's why it's not going to work. But that's not the only problem that could be. If the person is not bearing fruit, it could just be unhealthy. There's another problem, though. It might not be the kind of tree that you think it is. That could be a problem as well. Let's just imagine this year, or let's go back. Five years ago, one of you gives me a peach tree. At least you tell me it's a peach tree. Knowing no more than I do about trees, I would probably believe you, and I would plant it, and I would assume it was a peach tree. But then, as the tree grows and grows and grows, it never actually produces any peaches. And so years pass, and it should be bearing fruit. And so I call somebody, a friend, who knows a little bit more about treeology than me. That's not a real study. And they come and they, I say, hey, can you help me? My peach tree's not bearing fruit. There's no peaches. There should be peaches by now. And they come and they look. They take one quick, quick glance and say, you have a problem. That's not a peach tree. Well, that explains why it's not actually bearing peaches. Well, I think that's something of what Jesus is saying here in verse 44. Each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. It makes me really nervous when I meet people who identify themselves as Christians, and there is zero evidence of that. There's zero fruit, maybe for years and years and years and decades. It's possible. It's a very unhealthy tree. But I would venture to guess it's quite possible as well that that is not the kind of tree that you think it is. They aren't actually Christians, to be clear. Your actions expose the heart. There's two different applications we want to draw out of this. I think in the context of what Jesus has just said about these teachers and their disciples, I think there's a fruit analogy here that needs to be explored with those who teach you, those who teach particularly the Word of God. It's often in the scriptures where we see that false teaching, they are known by their doctrine, but it's not only by their doctrine. They're also known by their lives. Teachers should be marked and known by their lives. Next year, we're going to do a study of 1 Timothy in our equipping hour, and there's a lot of passages in 1 Timothy and other places as well about protecting the doctrine of the church. And we, as elders, we feel a responsibility for this, a deep responsibility to protect doctrine, sound doctrine, sound teaching. Yes, yes, and yes. But also, what we see is how do you know 
that somebody's up to no good as far as a Bible teacher? Well, part of the answer is you look at their life as well. The ministry is not set up so that somebody can buzz in, preach a sermon, and leave. That's not it. That wasn't Paul's model at all. He said this in 1 Thessalonians 2, which is interesting because it's a place that he got run out of town pretty quickly, but he desperately wanted to be there with them. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God in his teaching ministry, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. You see, there was this interweaving of Paul and his ministry friends with the lives of the people there. How do you know a false teacher? Well, they have bad fruit. That's part of the reason, part of the way that you can spot false teachers. This makes me a little nervous as I look around just the landscape, again, a technology footnote. As I look around, I I know a lot of people listen to a lot of sermons and podcasts and read books, and these are all blessings. I'm so thankful. I, I really, really am. But I would say my qualifier on that is you don't actually know those people, and that's a limitation. I'm not saying you can't learn from them. I certainly do. But you don't actually know those people. And I think it, there's, a, there's something of a short circuit that happens when you have a teacher of the word that has no connection to the people that he's teaching the word to. I think there's something of a disconnect, and I think that's part of what's going on here. So let's move on. So examine your teachers. Don't leave it there, though. Also examine yourself. The larger truth that's going on here is you're going to be known by your fruit as well. If you have your Bible with you, and I know most of you probably do, jump over to 2 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is a passage that I think is very helpfully speaks to this issue of assessing our own hearts and fruitfulness in the kingdom. He notes, first of all, in verses three and four, that the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness, verse four, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, he's gonna give a list of things that you need to be engaging your heart and mind in. Verse five, for this reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. All right, so there's a list of virtues here. And then verse eight. For if these qualities are yours, and they are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's our term again, being unfruitful. How are you going to prevent from being unfruitful? You're going to add these virtues, this list that he just gave us. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, love. But then he goes on and he notes, well, what do we do if we see these things happening in our lives? You need to ask some self-examination questions. Verse nine, 
For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So, number one, what if this fruit isn't present? Well, it's possible somebody has forgotten the gospel and they are just sort of living on their own strength and power and energy and they don't have the gospel in front of them. They've forgotten their purification of sins. They've forgotten that they're forgiven in Christ. Or, verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Or, they weren't a real believer in the first place. Sounds very similar to what we just looked at with Jesus' words, doesn't it? After all, Peter was instructed by Jesus. It's either a very unhealthy tree, forgotten the gospel, or it's not the kind of tree that you think it is. It's a bramble bush and you're trying to get figs out of it. It's not going to work. So, Peter is teaching the same kind of truth. Go back to Luke chapter six now. Jesus furthers this illustration, and he begins to talk about the heart. He begins to talk about the heart. Look at verse 45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, this will be, I hope, a helpful thing for us to consider this morning. This was really revolutionary for me many years ago when I began to understand the nature of our hearts. David has often drawn our attention to think about our own hearts, and this is sort of the essence of what we do as biblical counselors even. The things that you do come from your heart. That's the most fundamental and basic idea. Your heart... I. Just so you know, hearts aren't actually shaped like that. I don't know where the origination of that is. Maybe I should look that up. But we treat the heart sometimes as if, and our actions, as if it didn't come from our heart, as if it were inserted into our heart by somebody else. Here's what I mean. When you look at somebody and say, you made me mad. What have you just said? You took madness somewhere, anger in this context, you took this and you inserted it into my heart and then I just reflected it back. I don't think that's what happened. I think they actually found it in your heart and pulled it out for you. You should thank them rather than be angry with them. Wow, I can't believe that was in my heart. People find things in my heart all the time, probably in yours too. Driving this time of year in Jacksonville, I find things in my heart that I thought were long dormant, often as I'm driving around. This is, this is really convicting when we stop and think about it. Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I say the things that I say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's coming from you. It's your heart. Why do we sin? James would say, we sin when we are enticed and dragged away by our own desires. It's not outside of you. It's inside of you. I picture it somewhat like a magnet there's little bits of sin in your heart. And somebody, some people in this world have very strong magnets, all right? But they're finding something that's in your heart and they just came close enough and pushed the right button and they found it and it came out. They didn't put it in there. I think this is so crucial and important. 
One of the books I read many years ago that stuck with me on this concept was uh, a guy named Chris Lungard wrote a book called The Enemy Within, where he explores this whole topic. And what Lungard is doing is he's taking a lot of the thoughts of Puritan uh, pastor in the 1600s, John Owen. And when you start talking about sin and the nature of sin and temptation and things like that, in the theological world, there's basically two groups of people. There's people that have read John Owen and there's people that are reading the people who read John Owen. So it, it all kind of stems back from Owen when you start thinking about sin and temptation. So helpful. There's a chapter in Lungard's book where he says, looking at the human heart, at his own heart, he's self-reflecting here. He says it's sort of like going into a haunted house. Like there's this dark door and a bunch of creepy things. And you kind of don't want to look, but you kind of can't help it. And he says the human heart is like this. This is us. This is what we are. This is who we are. So why do we do the things that we do? Why do we say the things that we say? Because it's in our heart. That's a simple answer. What do we mean by heart? Basically, the, the Bible, when it, when it uses the term heart, it, it just, this is a term that carries a lot of freight with it. There's basically three things that are talked about, the mind, the emotions, and the will. And that leads to the things that you say and the things that you do. That's what we mean by this idea of heart. So, biblically speaking, think about it this way. Instead of a mammal, four-chambered heart, think of the spiritual heart as a three-chambered heart. It's the mind, the emotions, and the will. That is you. That's what makes up you, the immaterial part of you. And this is a consistent story throughout the Bible. That's why in Proverbs 4, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Your, your, your life, what you do, who you are, the person you are, it flows out of your heart. That's why Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I appreciate what Paul Tripp has said about this. He says, when you lose your cool with somebody and you say something hurtful and harmful, you probably shouldn't say, I'm sorry, I said that in that moment. I didn't really mean that. He said, what you should probably say is, I'm sorry I said what I actually meant. That's more true ownership of what's actually going on in our hearts. This is us. This is who we are. This is what we are. Let's move on. Similar type of thing. He's going to talk about the foundation that we're built on or not built on. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord? and not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against it and the house could not shake it because it had been well built. Storms have a way of exposing our lives, what we're really after. In this context, he's talking about a flood that came. And you've all experienced this at some level or another, I'm sure. You think that everything's just going well and you're doing great, and then trials come. Difficulty comes. You lose somebody. Something terrible happens. You have economic stress, job stress, family, relational conflict, whatever it is. This really, we can find out what our foundation actually is. These storms, the flood, exposes the foundation you could end up looking something like this house in North Carolina after one of the storms. I'm amazed as we look around the technology that we have now, 
uh, to build things on the beach. I mean, if you just go a few miles, a mile or so that way, you know, you know massive buildings that are now built on the sand. Um, the ancient world would, would have said that's a terrible idea. They, they didn't have the ability to build things quite like we can build them now in terms of the foundations. What's Jesus talking about when he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You know, there were some of his so-called disciples that ended up being exposed for not actually being disciples. This happens in a few different places. John, particularly in his gospel, focuses on this. A couple of examples, you don't have to look these up. I'll read these verses for you. Now remember, there's a group of disciples, a large group of people that are following Jesus. Out of that group, he calls some to be apostles. So we have disciples, large group, apostles, smaller group. Even within the group of the apostles, there was one that Jesus chose who was not a true believer, and that was Judas. And that becomes evident later in the story. John highlights this in John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So they said they believed, but then it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. You see, they said they believed, but they didn't actually believe. And Jesus knew that. And it says he did not entrust himself to them. Interesting verse. Later on in the Gospel of John, John chapter six, Jesus says, but there's some of you who do not believe. So he's standing there in front of his group of disciples and he's just given this very hard thing for them to hear about uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And many people are starting to go away because Jesus is saying crazy things in their estimation. Some of you do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So he knew Judas And he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It was too hard. You see, the storm of difficult doctrine had come and it shook them and they looked like that house that was caved in on the beach rather than one that was on firm foundation. They were along for the ride and they just couldn't take it anymore. In Matthew 15, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29 and verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, you can be here. You can be in the context of a church. And that doesn't mean that you're a follower of Jesus, really. So Jesus is calling us to examine the fruit of our lives. He's calling us to examine the foundation that our very lives are built on. Let me remind us of the two possibilities. You might look at yourself today and say, well, I'm not really displaying a lot of Christian fruit. Two possibilities, you've forgotten the gospel. Um, I will never be, uh, I'll never cease to be amazed at the ability of believers to do dumb things sometimes, all right? Just, we can sin, it's possible. We can even sin for a season of time, it's possible. But I would also say that the Lord is going to get the attention of his saints. He will. I believe that that is absolutely true. He won't let you stay in it and live in it. So why are we not seeing this type of fruit? One, we've forgotten the gospel. 
Two, we're not the type of tree that we think we are. You're not a Christian. You've never repented of your sins, trusted in Jesus, and had your heart and life changed by him. Those are really the two options. Jesus is calling us to examine very carefully what we are, who we are. Verse 49, but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. It's a good time for us to just stop and remember the gospel message today. This isn't supposed to leave us beaten up. It's supposed to be an encouragement for us to know that Jesus knows, he understands. He's our merciful high priest. He understands our temptations. He understands our weaknesses. 2 Corinthians chapter five and verse 20. 2 Corinthians five and verse 20. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to him. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the firm foundation. Not your own righteousness, the righteousness of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for this firm foundation that we can stand on in Christ. It's not our own doing. It's not our own creation. We aren't good enough just on our own. Lord, we need the righteousness of Christ. We need what he's done. We need the cross. So Lord, this is a straightforward text that calls us to examine both our own hearts and what we're ultimately building our lives around. So Lord, we pray that you would use this text. Lord, I pray for maximum fruitfulness for this body of believers, that we would not quickly forget the gospel and forget who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray maybe there's some here this morning or we'll listen in at some point. And Lord, maybe they need to hear this and maybe they have never actually repented of their sins and turned to Christ and trusted in him. We pray that you would use your word, show them their need for Christ today. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.